This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. Amen. Let me invite you to be seated. And as you're being seated, I want to echo what Barry shared earlier and say welcome. We are thrilled uh, that you are here this morning hanging out with us at C3 and also want to make you aware of an app that you might find to be very helpful. Many of you already know about this, but the version app, Y-O-U version, it is a free app. We love free 99 around here. It's a free app you can download. And here's what's incredible about this app. Not only does it have different reading plans, daily reading plans, different translations of the Bible, but also you can click on the little hamburger menu and then look for events and you'll find C3 Church Live And you can follow along all the verses we're going to be talking about. There's a way you can take notes in that app and email it to yourself. And and I just found when we engage on that level, where we're writing some notes, some things that may hit you that you want to think about, or you want to go back and read that passage later, it just exponentially takes up the connectiveness and our remembering of what God is doing in our lives and what he wants to teach us this morning. So grab the YouVersion app. Hey, I don't know about you, but... uh, Summer is not my favorite season. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if it is for you, but we, it, it gets a whole new level of hot in central Florida. And I, I have pastor friends I talk to around the country, and it's funny, everybody says the same thing. Well, it, it's hot here, but the humidity, like it's way hotter here than most places. I'm like, no, it's not. You, you haven't been to Orlando. You don't know. It, it is a unique level of hot. And context, context determines everything. Do you know people that talk a lot about stuff that they know very little about, and they act like they know everything about it? It's context. Context determines everything. For example, if you're at your house and grandma's visiting, and you need to let her know you're about to eat, it's time to eat, comma, grandma. But for those of you that are millennials and younger and you don't use punctuation, it's time to eat grandma. Like, that comes off totally different. The context really determines what you're trying to communicate. And today is one of those passages. We're moving into Romans chapter 7. If you're new with us, we are going verse by verse to the book of Romans, and here's why. I believe it is incredibly important to know what you believe, but I believe it's just as important to know why you believe it. And I think when life gets tough, when, when pain comes into life, when there's difficulty, when there's struggle, it's very hard to hold on to what we believe if we don't know why we believe it. And Romans, inspired by the Spirit of God, it's the Word of God written through the Apostle Paul. God used him to write a little over half of the books in what we call the New Testament. And Romans does such an incredible job of laying out, here's who God is, here's who we are, and here's what we do about it. And as we move into Romans chapter 7, Paul is going to use an example of marriage, but context matters. This is not a teaching on marriage. It's where marriage is used as an example. There are so many places and so many times in life where people Google, hey, Bible verses about marriage, but you've got to know the context to get the full meaning. So this is not a teaching on marriage. He uses an example of marriage for a teaching about something else. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. Brothers and sisters, he's talking family. So many times in the context of the Bible, God uses terms speaking of family. And so maybe you grew up in a more traditionally minded church. I grew up in church and 
And when I was a little kid, all the adults, the guys called each other brother so-and-so, brother Martin, brother so They would use that name. It's going back to the context of Scripture where if you're a Christ follower, you're in the family of God. It's a family context. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, and here, this is an example, not a teaching. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. What is he talking about? He's saying as long as we're alive, we have certain obligations. As long as you're alive, you have an obligation as a citizen. You have to obey the laws of the government. And if you're speeding and you get a ticket, you have to pay that ticket, unless, unless you die. If you get a ticket and you die before the ticket comes due, you, you don't have to pay it. At death, the obligation is over. I don't know who pays the ticket. I don't know how that works. I don't know if you're leaving that to your kids. I don't know. I, all I know is once you die, obligation's over. He's saying in marriage. In marriage, uh, listen, you, you're obligated. He uses the example of a woman, but it's interchangeable. It could be a woman or a man. As long as you're married, you have an obligation to your spouse until they die. Now, don't, don't, don't take this as a teaching on marriage where you can say, okay, then if I want out, I just kill them. Like, that's, that's the way out. No, that's not, that's not what it's talking about at all. Throughout the Bible... God uses this language of family when speaking of the church. We, we are a church family. I am a part of several families. I grew up in my family. Angie grew up in her family. When we got married, I became a part of her family, and she became a part of my family. And because of some of my family members, I apologized to her. And then also we have our family. And then we're also part of this church family. There are different families that we are all a part of. And honestly, as pastor of C3, I want to love you like a good dad. Angie wants to love you like a good mom. And often in life, and I don't know if you've ever felt this, often as Christ followers, we can be closer to people in our church family than some of the people we're related to by blood because there's something special about a spiritual family. But in this passage, he says, you're, you're obligated to your spouse as long as you're both alive. But when one dies, you're no longer obligated to that relationship. He's teaching that we all begin life, in a sense, married to the law, living under the law. And when Jesus died, those of us that are Christ followers, our sin died because of the gift we've accepted that Jesus made possible. Our sin died and we've been made new through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So in Jesus death, he fulfilled our obligation to the law. So we're free from the law. Now we live under grace, not law. Paul is being very clear, and here's what he's saying in its simplest form. Living under law is like living in a bad marriage. Living under law creates a certain kind of culture in our homes, and maybe you grew up in a home where it was all about the law. It was all about the rules. It was all about what you were supposed to do and the expectations. Living under law creates a certain culture, not only in our homes, but also in our relationships, even in our faith. Living under law creates a culture of control, a culture of rules and fear and threats and punishment. 
a culture of impossible expectations and a demand for perfection. This culture of living under law, it creates a discouraging atmosphere wherever it is. When you were a kid and you were in class and you had that one teacher that was all about the rules and all about the regulations and very strict and very heavy, or you grew up in a home with a mom or a dad, very strict, very heavy, all about the rules, it it, it creates a heaviness. And when we live under the law, we only have two options, perfection or failure. We meet the standard or we don't. Living under the law puts us on a, a treadmill of performance whose pace is all about where you fail, what you didn't do. And that tone creates an atmosphere of failure and disappointment in your life. And some of you as a kid, you just couldn't be good enough. Even if you did something well, well you knew eventually, eventually, Things were going to fall apart because you're going to fail. You can't keep the pace of perfection. The Jewish people in the Old Testament described it living under the law as the yoke of law. That big piece of equipment that was put over the oxen, it's it's heavy and it's burdensome and it's unfair and it's unjust. For the past couple of years, we've lived under the law in our culture in a whole new way. And when you live under the law and you grow up in a home with parents that are very much about the law and rules and regulation, what's easy to see are the inconsistencies. What's easy to see are the hypocrisies. And we've seen that in our culture. The inconsistencies, the hypocrisies, the demands on how we live and where we go and how close we can get and what we should put in our bodies. And by and large, people have had enough with it because that's what happens when you live in an environment of law. You already have the basic laws, and then you add a bunch of of mandates and rules and and laws that either don't make sense or aren't even followed by the people that create them. And it creates chaos and frustration and anger in our homes and in our culture. We even have people now at a level like never before who've made everybody else's business their own. In the Bible, they're called Pharisees. The Greek word for Pharisee is karen. But, but their job, their job, their job, do you know people like this? Their job is to ensure that all the rules are enforced and they're worried about what everybody else is doing and they're telling you what you should do while they're not even doing it. It's that harsh, law-based environment and in that environment, people do not flourish and it impacts people emotionally and spiritually and mentally, their well-being. Law does not create life. Grace produces life. And so in the gospel, we are judged by the law. And the law reveals that we are dying spiritually. And then we're brought to life through the grace of God. The law shows us that we're dying, and the grace gives us new life. But we now live in a decaying, damaging culture of all law, all rules, no grace. Mr. Gallup revealed a study, a body of research last year that showed, and it, it's, it's not from a Christian perspective, it's not a, a research with a biblical slant, has nothing to do with that at all. It's just research of the masses. And in this research, every single group in America, however you may categorize yourself, whatever label you may put on yourself, however you say, hey, this is who I am, every single group in America reported worse mental health in 2020 and 2021. Every single group except one group, those who attended church consistently. 
those who attended church consistently actually reported better mental health overall. Why? How does that happen? Well, the Bible teaches that the church is to be a grace-based environment. Now, maybe you grew up in a context of church. I grew up in a context of church that was very much a law-based environment, and I got the fat out of Dodge. But but according to Scripture and who we are as a church, it is a grace-based environment. The more crazy it is out there, the more grateful we are for grace in here. And if your Monday through Saturday is so filled with law, you desperately need a shot of grace on Sunday. One of the greatest benefits and helps, according to research, to mental health is the prioritizing of consistently being a part of a church. Think about it. We all know this. This is not shocking to you. You already know this. We don't take vitamins once a month, one day a month, and expect to be healthy. We we don't do that. We don't go to the gym once every couple months and expect results. You aren't faithful to your spouse occasionally and expect to have a great marriage. You don't practice your sport 10 or 12 times a year and expect to win. We know this. The biblical pattern for success has always been consistency. We don't even know yet the full impact of everything we've walked through the last couple of years on especially our children. We do know from study after study that children's mental health and personal development has been drastically impacted. We now know that 50% of chronic mental illness starts before the age of 14. More than ever, we and our children need a consistent dose of the grace of God and the hope of God and the strength of God and the wisdom of God around the people of God in this life. See, the church, it was God's idea. We have done a masterful job. People that have my title of pastor have done an incredible job of representing Jesus poorly and turning what should be movements of momentum toward life building into institutions that tear people down and clubs where people feel excluded. We have done a great job of that. But in reality, if you look at the scripture, the church is to be a place that is life-giving. The church is to be a place that is bridge building, not because we avoid the truth, but just because we love people more than our rules. And as we express the truth, it's done cheering people on in the life that God has called them to live and recognizing who everybody can be over who they used to be. There's a shift in focus that's got to take place. Some of you, the greatest thing you could do, the greatest thing you could, uh, uh, I've done this so long, I wish I had a better way to explain to you what I'm about to say because so often I'm invited to the front row seat of somebody's life blowing up. I, I wish you could grab now, before you get to the collision, I wish you could understand, some of you, the greatest thing you could do to improve your life is to give 60 minutes a week to being consistent in church and it will improve the other 10,000, 20 minutes of your week, and it will set a new direction of momentum towards sustained growth and health in every area of your life. As society pours more crazy, like we, we, we all, we all move to 911 Crazy Avenue. Like our cult, we have lost our freaking mind. Things that we know not to be true, we're told are true. And everybody's like, yeah, 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 sure, okay. I mean, we've, we've lost our mind, and we've lost our spine, and we've lost conviction of truth, and we've learned to shut up. And the answer is not to be obnoxious. The answer is not to be highly religious. Remember, it was religion that killed Jesus. 
The answer is to do what Jesus said, to love God and love people. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do is share the truth in love. Sometimes that is essential. But as society pours out more crazy, at C3 we're going to share more Jesus. But even churches have been impacted in our world. I read a study this week that said one in five churches in America, one in five, is now on the brink of closing and in meetings about discussing how to shut down and end it. The average church in America today runs 36% in attendance over what they did pre-pandemic. The average church in America today is down 65% financially in annual giving. 30% of pastors are now figuring out how to quit within the next month. We started the book of Romans, January 30th. Today we're in week 14. And Barry shared with you what's happened since January 1st, but just in these 13 so far weeks in the book of Romans, we've seen 95 people give their lives to Jesus in this room on a Sunday morning. I am so grateful that what's happening in a lot of places is not happening here. Why? Because of grace, because of how you function, how you live, how you view people, how you understand that every single person that you lock eyes with is deeply loved by God. Every single person has incredible value to God. Every single person Jesus died for and rose from the dead for, and you are not important, and I am not more important than anybody else who's alive. Everybody is equally important to God, and so you serve in a way that you extend grace. You give in a way that you extend grace. You lead and see three kids or on connections in a way that you extend grace. You invite people to a church that extends grace, and God is using you to change people's lives. I heard somebody say, if you have grace, people will find you. You have grace, and people are finding us. We are running almost double what we did our last month at Timber Creek five months ago. God is doing something unique. And listen, I want you to understand. It's important that you understand. I can't change anybody's life, and neither can you. But God is using you to change lives. Who you are is contagious because people are tired of living in a, under a weary burden. They want something that is uplifting and life-giving, and people are not afraid of truth. They just want to know you love them more than you love your truth, and they want to know that they actually matter, and that's how you function, and that's how you live. But he's saying, hey, living under law, it's like a bad marriage. Living under grace, it's like a great marriage. And and then verse 4, so my brothers and sisters, there it is again, that, that family language. You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. You died to who you were. Now you're able to bear fruit for God because of this grace in your lives. For when we were in the realm of flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Sinful sinful passions aroused by the law. What does that mean? The law creates sin in our lives? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the law is a spiritual MRI. It shows the problem but does nothing to fix it. He's saying God's law is the MRI of our lives, revealing all the problems and where the issues are, and it helps to diagnose the problem, but it doesn't solve the problem. The law is a revealer but not a healer. Then verse 6, but now... By dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The law reveals, the Spirit heals. We serve 
in the new way of the Spirit. What, what does that mean? When people live under the law, there are obligations to be met and there are rules to be kept and there are things that have to be done because of the law. And so a lot of even Christ followers still live under this concept of law where we're, we're trying to work toward being better and doing better and God loving me more because I'm performing better and I've got the law and I've got the list of rules and I've got to try to keep it because I, I want there to be progress in my life and so I'm trying to work towards something. But grace... Grace says, no, you and I can never be perfect enough, and the law is not how it gets us there. The law just reveals where we are. It's not about working to something. It's about living from something. The death and the resurrection of Jesus defeated sin and defeated death and loosed me. I'm no longer under the law, and so now I get to live my life not working towards something, but living from the victory that Jesus provides for me, and I get to live my life as a Christ follower, understanding Jesus loves me, not because of my performance, but because of my position. I am a child of God. And so he's pointing out this distinction. I'm released from my sin, from what the law reveals in my life. God has forgiven me. His spirit lives inside me. And I'm able to live in this new way of freedom, not the old way of defeat and frustration. Then he continues. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, key words, I would not have known. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. He's using an example, and he's, he's pulling out one of the Ten Commandments. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me an every, kind, every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. What does that mean? <laughs> Do you ever read the Bible? It's like, I feel like I'm reading Dr. Seuss on a spiritual level. I don't understand. What is, what is he talking about? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're no longer under the law, but let me explain why the law's there. Let me explain how the law is helpful. You, you, you no longer live under the law. And, and by the way, it's important to realize Jesus did not come to abolish or get rid of the law. He came to fulfill the law. He is our fulfillment in the law. He's not erasing the law. It's not that the law didn't have a purpose. He, he's saying, so let me explain why it's here. The law does three things. Number one, it sets a standard. It sets a standard. You think about the Ten Commandments. And even, maybe you're here and you didn't grow up in church, but the Ten Commandments is, is not an unfamiliar phrase. You might not know what they all are, and, and most people that go to church can't even say them all, so you're okay, it's fine. But, but you just know, hey, I'm not supposed to take things from people. I'm not supposed to kill anybody. I'm not supposed to sleep with somebody else's spouse. Like I, I, th- these, are, these are basic. So the Ten Commandments we're aware of, but did you know in the Jewish law, there were the Ten Commandments, then there were an additional 603 laws in the law of Moses. And all of those laws together set a standard. This is how life is to be lived in the best way. It's an ideal. It's a standard. For example, what would our world look like? Even though the Ten Commandments, we kind of feel like they're harsh sometimes. Sometimes people feel like the Ten Commandments, even the word commandments feels somewhat restrictive. Like, I I don't know if I want to live like that. Listen, 
Would our world be a better or a worse place if everybody obeyed the Ten Commandments? If nobody took what wasn't theirs, if nobody put anything else before God and let God lead their lives, our marriages, our families, if everybody obeyed the Ten Commandments, better or worse? It's better. The problem is we just know we can't do it. It's, it sets a standard, but it's an impossible standard to meet. The other thing the law does, it reveals our sin. He uses coveting as an example. What that means is what, what we see other people have, we want it. It's just who we are. It's just, I, th- I, think, I think I want that. And the reality is we get caught up in this trap and we live our lives. So much of our lives are defined by us chasing stuff other people have that once we finally get, we realize we didn't really need and it doesn't add the value we thought it would. But, but he's saying it reveals our sin, the areas where we're drawn to certain things and you have certain propensities and I have certain propensities and we're all different, but ultimately at the core we're the same. What we covet, it reveals our sin. And, and, and even parents know this. So parents use reverse psychology. Parents say things to their kids when they're little like, don't eat your carrots. Because we want kids to eat carrots. We tell people to do the opposite. But here's the reality we know that we hopefully have the courage to acknowledge. Either the law has to change or we have to change. But changing the law, have you noticed that changing the law usually doesn't make things better? Have you recognized that? It's baffling to me the laws that we decide we need to change when the very the very definition of a criminal is they don't obey the law. Let's make more laws that people don't obey the laws won't obey more. But the people that obey the laws, they'll obey. Listen, changing the laws does not change us. The law, it's not about changing the law. The laws often don't need to change. We need to change. The change that needs to take place is in our lives. We need to change. There needs to be repentance. It's the biblical word in our lives that is lasting. The law is there just to tell us who we are and what we need to change to reveal. And we've seen this played out before us. You remove laws and expect things to get better, and they don't. They get worse. If we change, that's when things get better. So the law sets a standard. The law reveals our sin, and the law, <laughs> the law annoys our sin. The law brings up those areas of struggle. Years ago, years ago, our oldest daughter when she was in high school, we, we bought her a car from my in-laws, and it was, a, it was a yellow Volkswagen Beetle. And somehow when, in the yellow Volkswagen Beetles, they have a little place on the dash for you to put a little vase with a yellow sunflower, and I wouldn't drive the car. I mean, it's, it's yellow, it's got a big flower in the windshield, like I'm, I'm not driving that. But one of the things I noticed when we bought her that car, you know, you know what I started noticing around town? There were other yellow Volkswagen Beetles. I'd never seen them before. And there's something about the law that once it speaks to our lives, once we know that it's there and we kind of are aware of it, we begin to see it even more. Coveting. Marketing is built to tap into your coveting. 
You got to have the new phone. There's that thing. There's that thing you saw online. It was an ad, and you didn't plan to watch the whole thing, but it was somewhat intriguing. And how did they know you were just talking to your wife the night before about, and now there's this ad on my phone. That's a whole different message. Now there's this ad on my phone, and I don't understand how they knew, but somebody knows, and maybe somebody's listening. I don't know if they're listening. Now you're sounding crazy. And isn't it funny how conspiracy, well, I'm not not even going to go there. But anyway, anyway, this coveting market. Marketing is built to that. So I, I need to have that thing or my life won't be any better. I, I need to drive that. Oh, that car. Have you seen that car? I know I probably can't afford it, but if I could just stretch it somehow and get that car, oh my gosh, what it would do for our family. Yeah, it's going to stress the living hell out of you. That's what it's going to do for your family. But I got to have it because marketing is built to target that company. Social media does the same thing. Social media helps you see friends you don't have and things you don't have. So the longer you spend on it, the more miserable you are because everybody else seems to be having a blast. What nobody puts on social media is their fights. What nobody puts on social media is the bad meal they made. What nobody puts a picture up on on social media is the vacation that was just wheels off and everybody's fighting the whole time. Nobody, everything we put on social media, look at me, I'm so good. I got the greatest friend. I'm I'm doing all this stuff in life. And it makes us miserable because that coveting that's inside us, we begin to see it more. The more law there is, the more rebellious we behave. Angie, when the girls were little, she went to London for 10 days with her grandmother, and she left Kaylee and Ashley with me, and it, it, was, it was chocolate cake for breakfast every day. I, mean, I, didn't, I, was, I was just trying to survive. But she went to London for 10 days, and, and when she came back, I remember she told me this story. There were all these places in London where there were little signs on the grass that said this, it is forbidden to walk on the grass. Now, when I see a sign that says it's forbidden, if you see a sign that says it's forbidden, what do we want to do? I mean, we just do. You walk by that bench and it has a sign, wet paint. We just like, it's just something in it. You tell me I can't do something. Now I want to do it. It's all I can think about. I can't stop thinking about it. I got to do that thing. You told me I couldn't. I got to do it. It's inside all of us. It's who we are. As soon as there's a law, we want to do the opposite. It was true then. It's true today. The law is not the problem. We are. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. The, the law simply helps me see what I couldn't see before. And then verse 15, I, I love this passage because some of you, this is where you live. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, <clears throat> I agree that the law is good. He said, when I do what I don't want to do, and I know I shouldn't, I'm agreeing that the law is good. I'm, I'm acknowledging, based on how I feel, the law is good. It's right. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And I'm going to, this year, I'm going to, I'm going to treat my wife better. This year, I'm not, I'm not going to react with my temper toward my kids as much. Man, this, this year, I want, to be, I want to be prepared. I want to do my homework ahead of time. Aren't you glad homework's almost over? I want to do my homework ahead of time. I don't want to wait till the last minute. And we have all these desires. We, we know what's good, and we want to do what's good, and yet so often... We find ourselves making the same promises to ourselves we've made before because we broke the promises we made to ourselves. And I've given my life to Jesus and he lives inside me. 
But I find myself, I keep, I keep messing up. What, what, what is that thing? I mean, I, I thought, okay, the Spirit of God that lives inside me is bigger than anything I face, and, and, and He's supposed to help me. He's supposed to help me with how I treat people. He's supposed to help me with my attitudes. He's supposed to help me with how I think. He's supposed to help me be better in my life. And there are these things that I want to do and I know I should do and I need to be doing that I don't. And then other things, man, I hate myself because I don't want to do that, but I, I keep doing that. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want to do, is it no longer I who do it, but is it, sin, it is sin living in me that does it? This, this is the let's be real honest moment. We're not under the law. But the things we shouldn't do, we do those. And the things we know we should be doing, we don't. And it's just called real life. He's saying even though the grasp of sin has been broken... And you and I are free in the spirit now. We still have, hear me, an enemy within. And so often, you spend your days fighting against you. There are moments that we know the phrase because it's true. You are your own worst enemy. Because we've learned to live in this, in this tension of I know what I should be, I know who I should be, but I'm not. And I want to be, but I'm not. And I know the things I do, should do, but I don't. And I know the things I should avoid, but I don't. And it kind of sounds like a childish excuse. Oh, it's the sin in me. I mean, that's what he says in the it's, it's the sin in me. But I think we have to understand the enemy inside you, the enemy inside me, it, it's not Satan, it's not a demon, it's me. He's saying... I want to live the new life that's available. So why am I doing this? Because this sin nature is still in me. Hey, friend, it is a daily battle. It is a daily struggle. Just because you've invited Jesus into your life does not mean that your sin nature is just gone. You and I will have that our entire lives this side of heaven. It is my flesh. What is my flesh? My desire. That thing I was born with, it wasn't contagious and I caught it around 10 years old. I was born with me being selfish. Uh, I, the things that I never had to teach myself, seeing myself as the center of the universe, rationalizing and justifying decisions that, that I want to make, even using spiritual language, my flesh versus the spirit in me. And one is going to lead. And sometimes the spirit is not what I choose. You, you thought it just wasn't working for you the same way. You thought being a Christ follower, you're trying. You're trying, but you know you. And you know the areas you struggle. And you've just thought that just, that just, there's just something wrong with you. If you find yourself in that place, saying, man, Jesus lives inside me. And I want to do good things, but so often I don't. And I don't want to do things that will mess up or harm my life or the people I love, my love, love the most, but so often I do. If, if, if that's you, here, here's your label. You ready? Normal. Normal. Because, yes, you're a follower of Jesus. And, yes, the Spirit of God inside you is bigger than anything you face. But your sin nature is still inside you. 
We are still living in a fallen world. We are still a broken people. And so there's that, that tension, that battle that you and I are going to deal with day by day. And then he goes into verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And thank God he doesn't stop there. Notice, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. You have an enemy, and that enemy lives within you. It's the sinful part of you. And there's a truth we've got to recognize. It's something we have to come to terms with. Because once I recognize it, and I'm aware of it, I can focus more on what do I need to do to overcome that, and how do I, how do I yield my life to the Spirit leading in these areas rather than me leading in my flesh and, and my desires. Because if you don't recognize it, sin will blindside you over and over again. Sin will blindside you over and over again. So what do I need to remember? We, we need to take the blinders off. What do I need to remember so sin doesn't blindside me? Number one, we are all masters of self-deception. <laughs> you can deceive yourself better than anybody. You can lie to you and call it the truth better than anybody. We are all masters of self-deception. We can even use the Bible and, and God to rationalize things we want to do. I remember years ago when we were meeting in the movie theaters. I was in a series on Sunday mornings on marriage. Huge fan of marriage, God's idea. Man, we, we are for marriages, and we recognize and Angie and I have our own story of struggle in our marriage. We recognize a lot of marriages struggle, and so we love seeing God restore marriages and restore people and what God does in people's lives. And, and, and if you've been through the, the pain and the heartache of divorce, we know, even God understands, nobody can go back in time. But this is about from this day forward, what, what do we do to live the life God created us to live? And so I was doing this series on marriage, and there was a guy in our church, this couple in our church. They'd been in our church for a while. He went home that day and sat down with his wife over lunch and said, God told me through the sermon this morning, I'm supposed to divorce you. <laughs> You're smoking crack. Like, I didn't say anything like that. The Bible, like, you, you can't find the pay. Like, it, no. Now, what he didn't tell her was, I found a honey at work I've been hooking up with. He didn't do that part, even though it's true. What he told her is, I'm going to blame this on God because I'm a coward and I don't have the spine to just say, I'm going to do what I want. I don't care. I'm going to put some spiritual foo-foo juice sprinkled over this and make it sound like it's God. So if you're going to be upset with anybody, be upset with God, not me, because God told me to divorce you. We are masters at self-deception. And often what we do is blame God instead of taking responsibility for our own lives. Another thing we do, we ignore our worst days and our worst decisions as the exception. You're tired, it's the end of a work day, it's been a long day, it's been a stressful week, and you're in a season where you've just been overwhelmed. There's some pressure financially, there's pressure at home, and you're, you're trying to navigate the pace of life and, and dealing with kids and dealing with marriage and just dealing with all the things we have to deal with day in and day out and other things that come in in an unexpected way, the unexpected bill, the car broke down. You're just, it's the end of a day and you're just worn out. You haven't eaten, 
you're tired, you're hungry, something happens at work, and you go off. And you say some things you know you shouldn't have said. And so the next day, you come back, and when you apologize, you say this, I'm so sorry, that's just not me. Well, who the heck do you think it was? No, that is exactly you. That, that, it's just not me. People all the time, man, you lose credibility when you apologize and say, that's just not me. No, here's what you really mean. When I'm not hungry and I'm not tired and life isn't too stressful and I have the energy I can muster up faking it enough, I'm going to give you the good me. But when everything is gone and all that's depleted, you get the real me. That's what it means. No, that is exactly you. That is not just something that occasionally you mess up. No, that at your core, that's who you are. When you're tired and worn out and life is stressful, that's when the real you comes out to party. And that's when the real you throws up on the people you love the most. That, that, that's not me. No, that is exactly you. In fact, your whole family emailed me and asked me to tell you this morning in front of everybody. <laughs> not really. Not really. I get questions sometimes. Did, did my wife email you? No. No. It's the Spirit of God. You better listen. He might take you out. He knows how to do that. I don't know. But we ignore, we ignore our worst decisions and we justify it by, that's not me. No, no, no. No, listen. I say this with all the love I can muster. That is you. And I say it to myself when I look in the mirror. That is me. That is us. And you're going to be blindsided by sin and your flesh taking over your life over and over again until you come to the conclusion and recognize that apart from Jesus, you are incredibly, I am incredibly messed up and sinful. And the last thing is this, we think we're different. I know other people do that and it blows up their life, but that's not going to happen to me. I know other people compromise in these areas and it it just creates a lot of pain. It's not going to happen to me. I don't know what it is about us. We all think we're the exception. We all think that we're going to be the one that gets away with what nobody ever got away with. That, That somehow that's going to happen. It's like if you're on medication and you decide, you know what, I don't like the way this medication feels and I know that I'm supposed to take it because the doctor said I'm supposed to take it, but I'm just going to go off of it. And I know other people may need this medication, but I don't. No, take, take your meds, please. Take, take, take the medicine. Like, you're not the exception. You think you're different. You're not. You'll never get better and you'll continue to be blindsided in life. If you don't take the blinders off, how do we take the blinders off? Because even a guy hearing verses from the Bible in a church where we prayed in a service, even hearing the Bible and praying, went home and told his wife, God told me to divorce you. Like, how do we take the blinders off? Because I have a way and you have a way. We can monkey with the word of God and we can direct our prayers in a certain angle and we can get in a place where God is here to do our will. We're not here to do his. And we can deceive ourselves into thinking it's all blessed by God and of God and it's all going to be fine. And we say things ourselves like, well, the children, kids are resilient. It'll be fine. We've learned these things we're supposed to say. So how do I take the blinders off? Very simple. By talking to the people who love you the most and know you the best. People who love Jesus, who are Christ followers. People who love you the most and know you the best can help you take your blinders off. That's why when you want to do something that you know is not healthy, you don't talk to them. That's why if you're thinking about the divorce, you talk to people who've been divorced and seem to be relatively happy, and you listen to them tell you it's all going to be okay. But the people who love you the most and the people who know you the best, 
they, they not only see, they live with your blind spots. If you don't believe me, go home at lunch today. It's going to be a long lunch, but go home at lunch today and say, hey, where are my blind spots? And then sit back, shut up, and listen. Now, you're going to get mad. <laughs> you're going to email us tomorrow. We'll try to help you this week. You're going to get mad. We'll put you in touch with the counselor. But I, I'm just telling you, the people that love you the best and know you the most, it, and it takes courage, it takes strength, but you can live a less than life being pummeled by sin every day, blowing up your life on a regular basis, or you can live a life where, yes, you have sin, yes, I have sin, but the default position in my life is loving Jesus and stepping more into his grace and asking him to change me. And I can look at this year, and I'm more like Jesus now than I was then. And I, I'm not where I need to be, but I'm a long way from where I was, and it's because of God. God working in my life and the grace of God in my life and people that love me and know me speaking truth into my life and having the courage to listen. Most of the time that I talk, I have people I talk to on a regular basis, tell me what's wrong with me. And they do. And it's not fun. But we only grow in the uncomfortable places. If you go to the gym and look at the weights but never lift them, (laughs) you're not growing anything. Muscles grow through being broken down and torn, and you've got to go to uncomfortable places if you want to grow. There is a battle within. Don't give up because it's still there. Keep fighting. Don't quit because sometimes you fail. Keep fighting. You'll lose some battles, but don't lose heart because the one fighting for you, with you, and in you has already won your war. And when you keep fighting and I keep fighting, we get to watch the Spirit of God surprise us with some victories that we thought we'd already lost. We get to watch God surprise us with grace that he applies to our lives. We get to watch God do things that we didn't think we could be a part of because I'm not good enough and I'm not broken. But you lean into it and you keep fighting. And how do you fight? Trusting the Spirit of God, surrounding yourself in community with people that love Jesus and love you, serving others and putting other people first, taking in as nourishment for your soul the Word of God each day, spending time in prayer, communicating with God, and you keep doing it day by day by day, and you don't give up. You keep fighting because the end of the book says you win because he won for you. You just got to stay in the fight. That's all you got to do. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. And I pray for every single person in this room this morning. And whatever part of these 25 verses that your spirit spoke to their heart, spoke to my heart. I pray this week we would take that and we would apply that. That we would stay in the ring and continue to trust you. And God, continue to develop and build consistency and growth and maturity spiritually into our lives because of your grace that we get to live from everything you've already done for us, not trying to work toward doing something to impress you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here and you know deep down inside that the greatest need in your life is to give your life to Jesus. You know that you need to commit your life to Christ. You need to invite Jesus to come into your life, forgive your sin, and be your Lord. And today's your day. Deep down in your heart, there's a voice in your soul that's much louder than my voice in your ear. And that's the Spirit of God. If there's anything inside you saying, I need to take this step of faith, I need to invite Jesus to come into my life, That's the Spirit of God. And so I want to encourage you, if that's you, to pray this simple prayer. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. But this this day is for you. You just say, dear God, I know that I need you. 
Jesus, please come into my life. Please forgive my sin and help me to live for you. Thank you for loving me. As best I know how, I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today at C3 Church Online. And if you just prayed that prayer with me, I would love to know that. I want to invite you to just shoot me a text with your first name and send that to 407-487-8311. The reason I ask you to do that, I would love to be able to pray for you by name. So shoot me the text with your name and know that I'm praying for you this week. And then for those of you watching that would love to connect and be a part of what God's doing, and maybe you'd like to give online, you can text C3 Orlando to 77977. And I want to thank you in advance for your faithful generosity, because every time you give to C3, you're investing in life change. God bless you. Hope you have an amazing week. And if you're in Central Florida, join us in the room next Sunday.